we've got a lot of uh, a lot of ground to cover today. Hopefully, uh, some more folks will show up. But uh, where two or three are gathered, there the Lord is with us as well. So we are. Um, before I, I turn into prayer and before we uh, get into the reading of God's word, we're beginning a new study today. We're not exactly leaving off worship, since worship is what we do in all of our lives, but we are uh, changing gears a little bit, uh, and we're going to be reading through the Johannine epistles for the next several weeks. We're starting in 1 John chapter 1 today, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and, and open to 1 John chapter 1. And any time we do a new study or we switch to something else, the good to ask the question, why are we studying this and why now? Uh, one of the important answers to that question is because it fits in the time that we have. Uh, it should mostly fit between now and the start of summer. We should be able to get through it. Uh, and uh, so we're going to take not exactly one chapter at a time today. We're going we're gonna to jump into the beginning of the second chapter uh, next week. Actually, Scott Owens uh, one of our newly mentored uh, elders is going to be taking over for me, and he's going to be teaching a class. And so he's going to take most of the rest of chapter two, but we're going to take it uh, chapter-ish at a time, and it should take us uh, to summer. Um, but it's also just a good general letter for us to read at just about any time. This is an epistle. It's a little bit strange in terms of an epistle. It's not like some of the other ones that we have from Paul, where we know uh, to whom it was written, and we have a better sense of the particulars of the place and, and who it was to. This is generally called one of the general epistles, or sometimes you'll hear it called the Catholic epistles. Uh, it, it's more of an encyclical, it seems. It's something that was just sent out there for the church to receive, something that the church at large could benefit from. Uh, we do know that John, uh, later in his life, ministered in and around Ephesus, and so there's a good chance that, uh, that he's writing it to the churches in that area, in Asia Minor. Uh, but it's a, it's a general epistle, and he doesn't start with, you know, to the, to the church at such and such. In fact, he has almost no introduction. He just, boom, uh, right into the action. That which was from the beginning, which we've seen, heard, uh, and touched, and all these other things. And he, and he gets right to it. Uh, but it's a good general epistle. Uh, he gives us a few reasons here in his letter why he's writing uh, at least 1 John, uh, he says, uh, we'll read today in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, he says, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy, or maybe your version says your joy, may be complete. And so there are a few aims in this first letter at least, he wants uh, God's people to realize joy in the Lord. That's one of the aims of this, uh, this epistle. He also wants them to realize what it is to have fellowship with one another and with the Father and the Son. Uh, and then characteristically, John gives us another thesis statement toward the end of his epistle. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what are the aims of this epistle? Fellowship, joy, and assurance. Something that we need uh, and something that is, uh, is precious to our faith to, to grasp what's going on here. Notice in that section in chapter 5, he also says that he's writing 
to those who believe. So this is a wonderful follow-over. This is a good sequel to the Gospel of John. You might remember that in the Gospel of John, he writes at the end of that in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he was writing the gospel to those who may not yet know or may not yet believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's an evangelistic message. Uh, and now, uh, writing later in his own life, we, we think, uh, and writing to the believers that he already knows, that there's this sequel, this follow-up. Well, how do we continue to live in Christ once we have believed? What do we need? Well, we need to know more and more about the truths of the gospel and our fellowship with one another and with the Lord. Uh, we need to know more and more about assurance that we have. Uh, and so this is part of the reason that he writes and part of the reason that we're studying. Uh, we can always uh, be blessed by growing in our assurance and our joy in the gospel. So I, I mentioned it's, it's an epistle, but it's kind of a strange one. There's no signature. He doesn't sign his name to it. He doesn't tell us uh, who it's written to, a bit like uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And a bit like the letter to the Hebrews, uh, it, uh, it seems almost sermonic. Uh, like he's, he's writing uh, a, a short sermon, a homily to the church. Uh, and, uh, and it's just sort of this, uh, this good encouragement. Uh, it's also interesting because it's really hard to, to pinpoint the structure of 1 John. And you'll see that as we go along. Uh, lots of people who are commentators and they sit down to write their commentaries uh, and the first thing they need to present you with is an outline of the book and they kind of scratch their head and eh. It's not nearly as easy as something like Paul where uh, he's linear and sometimes he takes a rabbit trail but he almost always comes back to where he was going and he continues his train of thought. Uh, John's, John's more cyclical. He brings up an idea and then uh, he'll talk about something else and he'll come back to it and then he'll talk about something else and he'll come back to that one and, and he just he revisits the same few themes over and over again, which I think is really good. It's really rich for us. It's a good reminder of the way that we all uh, have to live our Christian lives that there are these things that come up, these doctrines we need to go back to over and over and over again. Uh, and, uh, and this is what he does. Um, so it's written by John. There is a pretty strong traditional background to say that this was written by the Apostle John. So there were uh, disciples of John. We might call them second-generation Christian believers uh, in the early centuries of the church who knew John personally. And, and we have from their writings that, oh yeah, John was the one. Uh, the same apostle whom Jesus loved, the one who uh, reclined at his breast at the Last Supper, he's the one who wrote this, gospel, or wrote this letter. Uh, but especially when you begin to compare it to the gospel of John, you see these incredible connections. I mean, just, just everywhere. The themes that find, show up in the gospel of John show up all over the place uh, in his letters. Uh, it seems that he was especially influenced by the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, it's almost like this letter is John's commentary on those uh, few chapters that we studied last summer when Jesus was speaking to his disciples before his departure. Uh, especially this theme of love and loving one another and love among the brothers. Uh, John actually was known by his contemporaries as the apostle of love. Uh, and there are these stories uh, told about him that he would go around and, and in a crowd of Christians he would simply go to everyone uh, and look them in the eye and say, love one another love one another, love one another, and he would repeat this command of the Lord. Uh, and whether that is uh, a true story or apocryphal, uh, we'll, we'll uh, have to wait until glory uh, if we can ask him about that. But uh, his epistle certainly bears it out. Uh, it is everywhere, this idea that we ought to be loving 
uh, one another. And so here we have this letter of 1 John, and we're going to read it together, uh, not the whole thing, into chapter 2, verse 6, uh, and then we'll get into some of our discussion on the text. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you that you proclaim to us these things that are true, the word of life, uh, which has come into the world, which was manifest among John and his contemporaries, the apostles of Christ, who were witnesses of the resurrection. We thank you that you have revealed yourself uh, in the person and the work of your son, uh, and that through belief in Jesus Christ, we may have fellowship with you and with the son through the power of your spirit. Oh Lord, we rejoice in these things. Help us to grow in our study, not only today, uh, but over the coming weeks as we look at your word, as you speak to us through 1 John. Help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in the fellowship that we have with you. Help us to grow in our assurance. Uh, give us joy by your Holy Spirit in the kingdom that you are working in us and through us. Uh, we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in who you are and to continue as worshipers of you because of what we've seen in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start First uh, John chapter 1. Uh, reading uh, the beginning to chapter 2, verse 6. Hear God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him, and we proclaim it to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to watch in the same way in which he walked. Now, thus uh, far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's uh, look a little bit deeper into it. I want to break it into two sections, uh, these first four verses and then the rest of it, in verse 5 through the beginning of uh, chapter 2. And I think those two sections, which 
if you're reading the ESV, you'll be two paragraphs under two separate headings. Uh, the second half of chapter one and the first half of uh, chapter two, they're really one main section, and there's a structure that we're going to look at uh, that holds them together. Uh, but we're going to consider them in, in two separate ways. The first is this prologue to his gospel, which, as I mentioned, is, is not like a lot of the other prologue, I'm sorry, not the prologue to his gospel, but uh, to this epistle, which, as I mentioned, is not like a lot of the other prologues, the introductory statements. You know, when you read Paul's letters, not only will it say who it's to, but there's a certain first century letter form where they'll say, here's my, uh, here's my thanksgiving that I offer on your behalf, here's the prayer that I offer to the Lord on your behalf, and then they can get into some of these things. And you'll, you'll notice that, that sort of a quite lengthy introduction to a lot of Paul's letters. But, but John jumps right in, and he jumps right in with all of these verbs of perception. Take a look at them. Verse 1, we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, for an apostle, it's not uncommon that he would say we've seen and we've heard. Even we've looked upon, we've become witnesses, but he adds this element of touching. We have touched uh, this word of life that was made manifest with us. This is a big deal for John. Why do you suppose that in this, uh, this letter it's such a big deal for him to mention uh, he has heard and seen and looked upon and touched this word of life? Where do you think he might be going with this? Ronnie? Sorry. Ronnie, go ahead. Not just hearing and seeing, but, but touching. And so it is, it is a bit richer than just the fact that he has seen and been a witness. Uh, but it, it's a firsthand experience. And he wants them to know, and I think you're, you're right on the money, that he, he wants them to be assured that, that this is something that really happened. Uh, Alicia, were you going to add to that? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and, and so I think both of those are really important ideas. One, we have this idea of when this epistle was written, uh, probably pretty late in the first century, um, for various different reasons that we won't get into. Uh, most scholars, even liberal scholars, now concede that it was written at least by the same person who wrote the Gospels, but much later, uh, probably after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but before uh, the persecution uh, under uh, Emperor Domitian, uh, which seems to be a major point of, of uh, the book of Revelation. So it's sort of in between these things. And in between these two times, there's a good chance that John is the last of the apostles. Uh, he is, uh, he's the only one who, it seems, did not, uh, was not put to death by someone else, but he died. Uh, in exile, but died a natural death. And, and he would have been probably, if he's writing in the late first century, he's, he's a pretty old man at this point. Uh, he was with Jesus in the 30s, in the, the late 20s and 30s, uh, when Jesus was ministering, and now maybe it's AD 80, 90. Uh, and he's, he's an older man, and he may be the last apostle that's left. Uh, and there are these people, these groups that are showing up, uh, who are starting to doubt the fact that Jesus has actually come in the flesh. 
In fact, that's one of the major themes uh, that we find in here in uh, this letter. Take a look in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This is one of the, the underlying reasons, we think, that John may have written this first letter, that there are now as the apostles, the original witnesses of Christ and his resurrection uh, have, have started to die, and there are fewer and fewer uh, original witnesses. You remember in, sec in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, well, the Lord ra was raised, and he appeared, and he appeared to me, and, and to more than 500, and in fact, a lot of them are still alive, and if, if you want, you can go back and ask them. Well, that's not the case anymore. And people are starting to doubt whether Jesus was actually here in the flesh. Maybe he only appeared to be here. Uh, that was uh, a heresy that arose uh, pretty soon after the, the first generation of believers had died off. It was called docetism. It's from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear. Well, maybe it only appeared that Jesus was in the flesh. He was certainly this righteous person and maybe even the son of God, but, you know, to, to imagine that God would come in the flesh, in real human body, I mean, that, that's just a bit too far. So maybe he had just appeared, and John says, no, 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 no. Uh, he was there. We touched him. You recall, of course, the, uh, the moment that John may be thinking about, uh, and doubting Thomas is there. And he says, well, unless I see him, unless I put my finger in the nail prints, and unless I can touch him, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus shows up and says, touch me. I'm here. Uh, and do you have any, anything to eat? Give me some broiled fish. And he's there in the flesh, and he is, he is manifesting himself. He is showing himself to them. Uh, and John wants us to be completely clear on this, that Jesus was really here in the flesh among God's people. Now, this is huge. It's huge because he says, that which was from the beginning, uh, that was with the Father. Does that sound, sound familiar to you? John 1, yeah, uh, the word uh, which was in the beginning with God and was God uh, made his dwelling among us. We're, we're seeing these parallels. And he says, we, we start with this declaration, this proclamation that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, actually became flesh and lived among us. And it seems to be speaking about the resurrection as well. Um, how does that help us? How does that help you? Uh, who are now 2,000 years removed from the coming of Jesus in the flesh. How does uh, John's uh, testimony here help you in your daily life as you think about the faith that you have? Does it help you at all to think that Jesus was actually flesh, Cynthia? Sure. the eyewitness account what else the fact that so so it helps us to know that there were eyewitnesses who speak of these things 
And we can go back to their testimony, and we can say, yes, uh, there was someone who, who was there on the night that he showed up, and he said, touch and see. Uh, and we know that we, we live in this area now where Jesus says, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so we're in, we're in this second camp of people, but there were those uh, who wrote about these things that they saw. What else is the significance uh, for Jesus coming in actual human flesh? So there is that companionship aspect. Um, notice the way that John speaks of fellowship, uh, which the, the idea there is really a sharing, that we have a share together in something, that we're partners in something together. And he says, you can have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Uh, and there's a richness here to the fellowship that we have with Jesus, knowing that he, he came in flesh. In fact, I, I think this idea that he's, he's hearkening back to this, uh, this resurrection appearance, takes it a step further. Not only did Jesus come in flesh, not only did he suffer in flesh, but he was raised in flesh, and he is still in flesh at the Father's right hand. That's something that we, we tend to forget. Uh, our shorter catechism says uh, in one of the questions, speaking of Jesus taking on human flesh, uh, and uh, it's, the phrase is, and so he... Uh, he is and continues to be both God and man forever. Uh, who is the one who is before the Father, who is our advocate, uh, and who is the one interceding for the saints? Well, he's Jesus Christ in the flesh, not just some spirit in some spiritual realm. Uh, and so he was raised as proof of the, the resurrection and the power of God to raise up flesh, and he is ascended to the right hand of the Father in the flesh. Anything else? Jay? Yeah, so, so it, is, it is this essential element of the Christian gospel uh, that the creator took on a created body. Not that the creator became a creation. Uh, Jesus Christ was not created. He is the pre-existent, pre-eternal um, uh, son of God, one of, the, one of the three persons of the Godhead. He doesn't become a creature, but he actually takes on a created body, and he continues to have a created body. And so this huge gap, this, this unimaginable gap 
uh, between who the creator is and who his creatures are. That we can never ascend and, and we can never bridge that gap. He bridges for us. It's this, it's this condescending language. Condescending in a good way, not like speaking down to somebody, but he, he stoops low. Um, and he, he comes down to where we are to share in the things that we have partaken of. Uh, and he also partakes of those same sorrows. He partakes of some of the same frailties uh, and pain and suffering. Uh, I mean, how many times do we see that, that Jesus Christ is moved to tears or, or moved to frustration by his disciples? And we don't think about that. But, but there are all these emotions, not twinged with sin the ways that ours are, but Christ actually came and partook of all these things. That's part of the fellowship that we have with him. Somebody who knows us experientially, not just somebody who knows us because uh, he has created something, but he, he walked in the same places that we walk, the shoes that we walk in. Yeah, and so it's this, this idea that raises our heart. How glorious that the Lord would do this for us, for those who, who are made of the dust, and, and we don't deserve these things. I saw Dave in the back, and then Teresa. I'll come right next to you, Teresa. David. Yeah, and, and we, could, we could keep going, right? I mean, there, the implications of, of the fact that Jesus has come in the flesh are, uh, are all over the place. Um, and this idea, yeah, he, he came because this was the problem at the first, and he has fulfilled what he said he was going to fulfill. Um, not just the prophecies, but the redemption. Uh, a, a redemption of our bodies as well as our souls. This holistic problem of sin that we have. This was the problem with those in the first century who, who wanted to imagine that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Uh, they had this philosophical idea that material things were essentially bad uh, and spiritual things were essentially good. And the goal, this, this idea of platonic dualism, this, this idea was to be freed from the materialism of your body and to ascend to a purely spiritual realm. Uh, and I think in, in a way, John is telling us well, well, no, your body and your spirit are in this together. <laughs> and, and it's not, well, let's just wait until we're free from this body and then everything will be hunky-dory. Uh, because Christ has come in the flesh to redeem our bodies, uh, and our bodies, our risen bodies, are part of the gospel message, uh, that it keeps going deeper and deeper. Teresa.
Right. And, and so I, I would take it, I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing, I mean, Jay just mentioned it, it, um, it sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. Um, and I think in part this, this idea that God has come down to redeem us, how, if, if we're in Islam, if we're, if we're Muslims, how do we make our way to God? We, how? We, well, we, we balance the scales. We fulfill the law, and we fulfill the Quran, right? And, and we fulfill all the things that Allah has given. And the way that we have any hope of being in paradise and enjoying whatever paradise is uh, in Islam uh, is by fulfilling all these things. Uh, but, but um, you know, this basically says... Uh, what you need to do to live a good life and to be accepted by God is to do better and to try harder. Right. Uh, and, and the Christian gospel says, well, no, God has come down to fulfill all the things that you are unable to fulfill. Uh, that, that Jesus came in the flesh, and it was necessary for him to come in the flesh to fulfill a law given to people that we could not fulfill. So it's his grace and it's mercy, it's his condescension. And this is, I think, exactly what, uh, what John is writing about. And he wants you to know, uh, not you know, 615 years after the fact, but somebody who was there on the day when he was resurrected, who looked into the empty tomb and saw that he wasn't there and then saw Jesus later that evening with the rest of the disciples when he showed up and he ate fish in their presence and they saw him and they touched him. He wants you to know, no, I was there and, and this is actually true. He was really dead, uh, he was really raised, and he is really in the flesh. And I think that this is what we have to come back to, that we have the witness of somebody who says, no, this is exactly what God has done. Uh, and, and the witnesses of the rest of the apostles, those who, who saw Jesus Christ. And we don't say, well, you know, it's this peripheral matter. Uh, this, is, this is the basis, I think, uh, for, for all the rest that John is going to give us in his epistle. The fact that Jesus has come in the flesh. In fact, you, you saw uh, in chapter 4, he said, the spirit of the Antichrist, now in the world that you heard are coming, these are the ones who deny that Jesus has, has come in the flesh. Uh, and so how do we know uh, that God is speaking? Well, it begins with an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and done uh, what he said he was going to do. Does that answer the... Yeah. Sure. A different way that, um, that I've heard it expressed is that every other religion says the problem is out there and the solution is in here, and if I can overcome what's out there, maybe it's the law, maybe it's uh, all the commandments that you've been given, um, and that's the obstacle, but, but if I can try hard enough to overcome that obstacle, shift direction, um, Buddhism, uh, the problem is materialism and the trappings of this world, and what I need to do is I need to uh, transcend. The problem is out there. The solution is in here. Christianity reverses that. It's the only religion that does, as far as I'm aware. Uh, the problem is in here. The problem is the sin of our hearts and the sin of our whole person, that spiritually and physically uh, we are dead and dying as a consequence of our sin. And so Jesus came in the flesh, in a human person, in a human body, uh, to redeem us from the problem that is inside of us, not just outside of us. Okay? Yeah. Cynthia. 
Yeah. So how is it significant, or how does it uh, help us in our? Okay. And that, that takes us right back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. No one has seen the Father. The only Son who is in the Father's bosom, he has made him known. Uh, and, uh, and the law has come through Moses, but grace and truth, and that's an echo, really, of Exodus, chapter 34. Uh, the Lord descends, and he proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hesed and emet. Uh, and when you translate those into the Greek Old Testament, what is he? Well, he's faithful, hesed, uh, covenant love, and he's true. And, and John, in, in the Gospels, picking up on those threads, he says, you know how Moses on the mountain wasn't able to see God? And God proclaimed his name in front of him. He said, my face you cannot see, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. But nobody is able to see him. And John says, no one has seen the Father. But Jesus Christ has revealed him because when he showed up, he showed up in faithfulness and in truth. In hesed and emet. Uh, and this idea that he is the perfect revelation of the Father. He was manifested. Yes, absolutely. How do we know what God is like? We look at Jesus. Uh, and, and let's not fall into this trap where uh, some people will say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's really angry, but Jesus, he's full of love. Well, why has Jesus come? Because the Father is full of love for his people, uh, that he's calling to himself, and so he sends Jesus as the Redeemer, the only Redeemer of God's elect, because he's full of love for his people. Um, not because he is this wrathful, vengeful God. Uh, he is a righteous and holy God. And yes, our sin has separated us from him, but Christ has come to show us that, that the Father is condescending and he is loving and he is caring. And he desires to have fellowship with us. Now, this, this idea here, you know, I, I love uh, just the beauty of the breadth of Scripture's expression. What are the many ways that we think about salvation in Scripture? Sometimes we zero in on one aspect and we'll say, oh, salvation is forgiveness of sins. Yes. Uh, but for a reason, and, and the reason is fellowship. That God wants to have fellowship with these creatures that he has made. And, and so John, in a sense here, is, is looking past the obstacle of our sin that Jesus has dealt with. Because we're going to talk a little bit later about him being the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice. And he says, if we, have, uh, if we believe that he's come in the flesh and all these things are true, then we have fellowship. That's the goal that God is getting at. I, Actually, um, too many devices up here. Um, so, um, oh, what's his name? Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray, in uh, his book, Humility, the Beauty of Holiness, this is what he says. When God created the universe, it was with one object of making the creature partaker of his perfection and blessedness, and so showing forth in it the glory of his love and wisdom and power. 
God wished to reveal himself in and through created beings by communicating to them as much of his own goodness and glory as they were capable of receiving. To make us partakers, says Andrew Murray, that's the idea behind fellowship. Uh, the idea of fellowship, the, the word here is koinonia, and you, you've probably heard it before. Uh, you know, we love to, oh, we've got our koinonia Bible study, uh, or we're going to have our, our koinonia luncheon, or, or whatever. It's one of these Greek words that we pick up and we bring in, and the idea is sharing together. Uh, it, is, it is communing together. It's the idea uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul talks about having communion with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord at his table. Uh, and, and through the, uh, the cup that we bless and, and the, the bread that we break, we have a, a fellowship with the Lord. And he says, this is what happens. Because Christ has come in the flesh to redeem fleshly and sinful people, we can have real fellowship and real sharing with the eternal God. It ought to blow our minds. If we really sit there and think about it, this gap that the Lord has crossed that we could never hope to cross, and he says, this is, this is what he's done. He's come to give us fellowship. Yeah. Bill. Absolutely. Yeah, and he has made him known. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what he tells his disciples in the upper room. Uh, Show us the Father, says Philip. Have you been with me so long and you still don't know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he says. The exact imprint, as you're saying, the exact imprint of his nature, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus. And he still does. He still dwells bodily in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Uh, and so what is, what is Christ doing in the flesh? Well, he's making the Father known. We're going to move on, or we're not going to get any further. Um, I'll let you think later about this, uh, this other idea of joy. Um, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And what does it mean to have fellowship with the Lord and to have joy in that? And how is that joy expressed? Uh, and how can we express that same joy together with believers? He speaks not only of fellowship with the Father, but fellowship one with another. How can we express our joy in the Lord through the way that we fellowship with one another? Uh, and so I'll, I'll let you folks uh, dive more into that uh, as a Sunday afternoon topic, but let's move on, unless Jay has something really poignant to add. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there is uh, an apostolic boundary that he's setting up here. We're the apostles, we're the witnesses. In fact, that is one of the main points. We just went through Acts, 
and Jesus sends out his apostles, and he says, you're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of my resurrection, my bodily, physical resurrection, and my ascension to the Father. This is the message that you go out with, that he was, uh, he was killed, uh, he was uh, put to death, crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, uh, which you have received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Uh, and, and there is, there is a, a, an irreducible complexity to it. If we, if we take out any of those elements, you have lost the gospel. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that in our, our modern age, the, the, the thing that uh, John was dealing with is flipped upside down. He was dealing with, it seems like, some people who were saying, well, Jesus might have been this sort of spiritual, appears to have been flesh kind of heavenly being, but he wasn't actually man. Now, lots of people are willing to say, well, Jesus was a real person, sure, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't the Savior, he wasn't God, he wasn't anything above that, because there is nothing above that, right? Because it's all just matter, and it's all just uh, elements in motion, and, you know, it's thermodyna thermodynamics, and that's all there is. Um, and, and they're willing to say, sure, there was this guy named Jesus who lived in Palestine in the first century, and he was put to death, and nobody knows what happened to his body because somebody probably stole it because they wanted to start a religion. That's it. Um, and, and he's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, one, he's, he seems to be talking about the resurrected Jesus, but he's also speaking of the one who was with the Father, uh, the word of life, the eternal life, that there is something beyond uh, the thermodynamics that we're so caught up in, that there's something more than that. Now we're going to move on, okay? Uh, so take a look, uh, beginning in verse 5. And there is uh, this idea where he, he seems to be fleshing out what this fellowship looks like. You notice in verse 3, uh, we have fellowship uh, with us, uh, fellowship with the Father and the Son, and it shows back up in verse 6. We say we have fellowship in verse 7. Uh, we have fellowship uh, with one another. So he seems to be fleshing out this idea. Well, what does it mean to have fellowship? What does fellowship with God and even fellowship with one another, what does it look like? Uh, and he's telling us that it entails walking uh, in the light as opposed to the darkness. Now, this is a pretty prevalent theme in John's writings here in his letter, but also back in the gospel uh, and it's a big idea throughout Scripture. He says in verse 5, this, this is the message we've heard from him, and we proclaim it to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does John mean when he says that God is light? Well, perhaps what are some of the images that Scripture uses when it speaks of light versus darkness? What are some of the, the pictures that come up in our mind when we think about that? Rob? Absence of? Okay. Um, so, so positive in, in what sense? Just generally positive, just always good. Actually is a thing. Good. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so it is creation as opposed to lack of. Uh, we'll leave it there. Light is a good thing. It is a thing. It is something. Okay, okay. So, uh, God who is uh, all being, no potential, but all being, who does not change, uh, of course he's going to show up in, in perfect light, as opposed to the lack of light. Um, sure. 
Uh, I, I think sometimes I can I can track with. Uh, yes. 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 Good. Good. So, what are some of the other images in Scripture of light versus darkness, Steve? Yeah, uh, think about John chapter 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's easy to hide evil works and unrighteous behavior uh, if you can do it in the dark. Uh, it's a reason that, uh, you know, you, you're not normally worried, though it happens, that your house is going to be robbed in broad daylight. Uh, you wait for the thief to come around in the night, and I mean, it's a... It's a term in scripture, the thief in the night. This is when it happens, when, when men love uh, evil deeds and they do them because their works are evil. Uh, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. It's this idea of, of exposing uh, righteousness and falsehood, uh, righteousness and wickedness, uh, in a sense, this idea of, uh, of complete um, goodness versus evil. Okay, Scott? Absolutely. Uh, and, and this idea of a, of a light that has no mixture in it. First uh, Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6. Maybe second. I didn't, I didn't get the reference. Uh, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, it ought to be pure. Uh, and, and the way that we... Um, image forth the light of God in the world is to be pure. And in that sense, he's talking about, I think, a marriage relationship uh, and our closest bonds of friendship and fellowship. Uh, we ought to be uh, believers with believers. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a picture of the purity of God and his light that shows up as, as not mixed with any darkness. Right, and, and, and the ultimate truth coming from the Lord is the revealer of truth. Uh, this idea, and in fact, you've, you've put your finger, I think between all of you, uh, you, you've put your fingers on what John is getting here. It is, it is this really rich picture, but it, it takes into account uh, something of righteousness and unrighteousness, something of truth and falsehood, 
uh, of, of purity or, or impurity, uh, this idea that if we walk in the light, we are willing to be exposed by God's truth and to have his righteousness show us our unrighteousness. And notice that language that Greg is pointing out. In fact, there is this structure that shows up through this section. Uh, there is uh, this idea. You see it uh, in verse 6, 8, 10, uh, and 4. If we say, so here's the claim. So some people will claim, what's the claim in verse 6? If we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, there's the claim. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. Verse 4, it's a little different. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. And each one of those is followed up by a statement of deception. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Oh, that's getting a little bit more serious now. It's not just that we lie or just that we don't have truth, but we, we now contradict what God has said about us. And we say, no, 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 we're calling light darkness and darkness light, which is not something in scriptural terms you want to do to confuse those two. God's truth with, with man's idea of truth. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, in verse 4, whoever says, I know, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so this idea of light versus darkness is sort of the combination of all of these things. It's this idea of, of God's truth, the truth of God's righteousness and holiness exposing our unrighteousness. Now, this is pretty important because when we get to verse 6, sometimes we can take this uh, in a direction that I don't think John intends us to take it. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, the direction that may sometimes be taken, and I certainly know the way that it was taken uh, in some of the churches that I grew up in, is that if you walk in darkness, you cease to have fellowship that you used to have with the Lord. And so if you want to maintain your fellowship with the Lord, you have to keep walking in the light. You have to keep from the, the buzzword was backsliding. Now, obviously, we, we don't want to encourage anyone to fall into sin. In fact, he says uh, in chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't want us to fall into sin or to walk into darkness. But we can take this as an indication that, well, if you want to have, what does it say in verse 6, or verse 7, rather, um, if you want the blood of Jesus, his son, to cleanse you from all sin, you've got to be at least this tall to ride this ride. That's the way that it can come across. Uh, that you have to walk in this much light and you have to stay away from that much darkness and it can become this idea of, of a worse righteousness. Jay. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Now, is it necessary that believers do good works? Yes. Good question. Um, the, the way the Lord causes us, um, the way the Lord preserves us is by growing us in perseverance. Uh, and you'll notice that, that he ends, so there is this back and forth, and we'll look at the other half of it, but, but look down to chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, here's the sum of the matter, we could say. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he once walked. So there's a, there's a negative and a positive going through the whole thing. Now, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship, we walk in darkness, there's the negative. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, there's the positive. Verse 8, say we have no sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, negative and positive. Uh, verse 10, we say we have not sinned, uh, but I think the positive comes up in chapter 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. It shows up again, chapter 2, verse 4, the negative. Uh, whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments, and then the positive, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, and then they come together in the end. That your, your statement of who you are ought to align with the way that you live. There, there is an element of walking as he walked, uh, of keeping his commandments, and taking seriously what the, God, what the Lord says uh, about obedience for his people. Um, but, but I think you're right, uh, Jay, that, that a large part of it is beginning with the standpoint of recognizing how often we don't do that. That's part of walking in the light, is a recognition of our sin. Not a recognition of, I have done enough so that the Lord will be the propitiation for my sin. That begins with, with this idea of confession. I saw Dave in the back and then Geraldine. Dave? Yeah, and, and the heart is deceitfully wicked. And notice how often uh, John is saying here, uh, if, if we claim to be following him and walking in the light, but denying what he says about us and our fundamental brokenness in sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Our deceitful heart is, is rising up and saying, no, 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 don't, don't worry about sin. Sin's not the problem. Uh, it's something else. It's, it's the way that you've been sinned against. It's not the sin in your own heart. That's the way that you have been treated in life, or it's the, the things that have happened to you uh, in our deceitful heart. That's our propensity is to say, oh, no, 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 sin's not the problem. But the Lord says, no, no, sin is the problem. In fact, sin is the reason that Jesus has come in the flesh. That's the reason that he is the propitiation, because there is this need for cleansing. That's what he says. He is faithful and just to cleanse us. Why? Because we need to be cleansed. Uh, because we are filthy in our sin and our iniquity. Uh, and walking in the light is allowing that uh, that light of his truth about who we are and what our fundamental problem is 
uh, to work its work in us uh, and to draw us to confess. Geraldine. Um, yeah, you, you can be justified in the sight of the Lord apart from works. This is what, what uh, Paul says in Romans, that, that one is justified by grace apart from works, uh, that we have right standing with the Lord based on his grace and his care for us, his undeserved mercy. Now, the question of what does a Christian who is saved look like uh, is another matter. Um, and I think this is the same question he's getting to. Sometimes somebody will come over that stumper. Uh, they'll say, well, you know, um, James says in chapter 2 uh, that suppose somebody says they have faith and no works, uh, can that faith save him? Well, no, that faith can't save him, but real faith can. Uh, and that's the question that James is getting to. And, they, and they, they'll try to pit James and his idea of faith and works against Paul and his idea of faith and works, but they're not asking the same question. Uh, I think James is asking a question very similar to the one that, that John is asking here. Let's take a look there, uh, James chapter 2, just to get a little bit of context. James chapter 2, verse 14. We're already over time. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Notice, this is a question not of, does faith save you? It is a question of, how can you know whose faith is real faith? This is a question of outward uh, vindication of saving faith. And I think what we see in Scripture is that true saving faith is what Scriptures call a living faith, a faith that, that works through love. That's the kind of faith that saves us. Not that the works save us, but they are the fruit of God's work in us, produced by his spirit in us, and we have certain warnings in Scripture that if we are living, and I think this is sort of the question that John's getting here, if we're living with a, a statement, oh yes, I have fellowship with the Lord, uh, and you've been saying that for 20 years, and you don't give a whip about sin, you don't care about sin, and you don't care about righteousness, and you don't care about personal holiness and all these other things, you're deceiving yourself. Not because your works will save you, but because your works say something about the fact that God has saved you. Am I, am I being clear, or am, I, or am I going in circles and confusing us more and more? You good? So I think, I think John is doing something very similar to what James was doing here, and he's saying, let's, let's examine what saving faith looks like when it shows up in a believer's heart. Not, not how are you saved, not how are you justified by the Lord, but what does it look like for someone who is saved? How do they live? Well, they walk in the light. First of all, they allow the light of the truth of God to expose the fact that we are sinful and needy and we need to be cleansed. That's where it starts. Uh, a recognition of our sin is the first step in, in walking in righteousness, that we are unworthy and we can't do it on our own. But it doesn't stop there. 
it presses on to walk in his ways and to uh, keep his commandments. Not because we're saved by those things, but because our, our faith is evident by those things. Scott, I'll give you the last comment, and then we've got to wrap up. Oh, please do. Second Corinthians, thank you. Oh, good, good. Thank you for the help. Um, we didn't get to talk about chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, propitiation not only for our sins, uh, but for the sins of the whole world. But, you know, Scott's teaching next week, so he can start there. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I really prepared for that one, too. Uh, but we're over time, so folks, let's, uh, let's end in prayer. And uh, as I mentioned, Scott will be starting in verse 7 next week uh, of chapter 2 uh, and continuing on through most of the rest of that chapter. Let's pray together. O oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you that you know all things perfectly. You know not only what saving faith looks like, but you know those to whom you have granted it and those in whom you are working. Uh, and we pray uh, that as we see the evidence of your work in our lives, we would know that we have life. And we would know, we would grow in assurance of salvation uh, because you were at work in us, that we would grow in joy in the work that you do in us. We would grow in fellowship with you, O oh, Lord, that you have condescended uh, to us where we are and taken on flesh in the person of Jesus uh, and you have saved us from the sin which keeps us from fellowship with you and you have opened your ear uh, to our cries and our prayers and you are the God who is ready to receive your people uh, at the last day when Christ will bring us to be with you where you are. Uh, remind us, O oh Lord, of the fellowship that we have in Jesus with you and help us to look and to rejoice and to be overjoyed by what you do in him for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.